Did you know that Steve Jobs sold his Volkswagen and Steve Wozniak sold his scientific calculator to raise enough money to start their new company, Apple, in 1976? And then did you know that 35 years later, Apple was so successful that it had more cash in the bank than the U.S. Treasury? What's up, everybody? Gen X Dividend Investor here. Today, in my 25th stock reveal video, I'll be doing a deep analysis of Apple, my largest dividend stock by portfolio value of the 25 I own. Wow, I made it. It took me six months to get here, but I did it. Thank you so much for sticking with me. So if you are somebody who likes this video or Apple, then take a bite out of that thumbs up button as a thank you to me for making this free deep analysis video. Also, thank you for subscribing, liking, commenting on, and sharing my videos. I really appreciate it. For fun, I asked folks to guess what my number one stock was. A ton of people guessed Apple after my Microsoft video, which is a great guess. But as I mentioned in my Microsoft and J&J videos, I stopped tracking guesses at that point because it gets too easy when you're this close to my number one stock. So instead, I'm going to call out the 11 people who guessed Apple a while ago and that I wrote down in my tracking spreadsheet and that didn't edit their original guess. So we have Player One Investment Channel, Minds in Motion, GM, Bob Wright, NEMA, VAN, Dividend Income, Tubi, Spending Jar, Victor Hernandez, and Stephen Adair. Sorry if I missed anyone. I'll be doing something else fun soon, so stay tuned. I'm going to be giving away a $100 Amazon digital gift card to one of those people. So let's go to the random name picker. Awesome. Congrats, Spending Jar. He's a cool guy, has his own channel, and he gives away stuff too. Now I'd like to invite you to join the Dividend Discord chat server that I've recently started. You get direct access to me as well as to over 800 other dividend investors, and our numbers are growing all the time. Discord's a free chat service on the internet. You can access it either with your browser or with a smartphone app, or you can download a thick client for your computer from www.discord.com. It's easiest to just click the link in the description of this video or download the smartphone app and type in lowercase k, k, capital S, lowercase r, 5, capital F, capital Y, into the invite field. We have all kinds of experienced investors in this new chat server, including multiple people who became millionaires through investing, and we have people who have never invested and are just interested to learn. We have all ages represented, from teenagers to people in their 70s. They come from around the world, including Cyprus, Kuwait, Romania, Finland, Bulgaria, Germany, Canada, Belgium, Singapore, England, Australia, and a bunch of others. We have a main chat area that is basically just for normal BSing, and we have specific channels for dividend investments as well as non-dividend investments, such as if you want to talk about Tesla or Bitcoin or real estate or whatever. That way we keep the investing rooms focused on investing and the other rooms for other topics, such as movies and TV, politics, general news, sports, health and fitness, and others. Of course, none of this information should be taken as financial advice that you act on without doing your own research. Also included in the description below is a link to the latest version of my portfolio represented in M1 for those of you that asked for that. And of course, don't just copy what's in my portfolio. I've been using M1 with a growth portfolio and I've enjoyed their UI. If you'd like to sign up for M1 for a new brokerage account so you can start dividend investing using it, then please consider using my M1 referral link that I'll also include in the description below. 
M1 seems to run promotions that give you free stuff when you open a new non-retirement brokerage account using someone's referral link and you transfer some money into your new account. Like when I signed up, I got a free $20. I don't know what promotion they're running when you click on the link, but I'm guessing it's something. Okay, now let's review my portfolio and then I'll do a deep analysis of Apple. Okay, here we are in the portfolio allocation part of the spreadsheet. And now we have all the stocks in there. This is the Infotech with Apple and Microsoft at 16.2% of the portfolio. And then we have Healthcare with Johnson & Johnson, AbbVie, and Pfizer at 11.1% of the portfolio. Consumer Staples, Food Beverages with Pepsi and Coke at 12.1%. Here we have Utilities, Duke and Southern at 10.7%. Real Estate with O at 5.9%. And then we have Consumer Staples Household Goods with Procter & Gamble, Kimberly Clark, and Colgate Palmolive at 13.3%. Communication Services with AT&T at 5.2%. Consumer Discretionary is right here with McDonald's, Starbucks, Home Depot, and Disney at 9.1%. And then we have Industrials here with 3M, Leggett & Platt, and Caterpillar at 9.4%. And this right here is energy at 4.2% of the portfolio with Chevron and Exxon. And then we have financials with Goldman Sachs and Travelers at 2.8%. So that's the overall allocation. If you want to compare this to VU, you can see that in some places I like more and I invest heavier in those sectors. So for example, uh, consumer staples is one I like a lot and I have about 3.5x as much uh, of a weighting about my portfolio, overall portfolio relative to VU. Utilities is another one I like a lot, so I have about 3x the amount. So if you see that I have 10.7% of my portfolios in utilities, and then if you look at VU, they're about 3.3%. And utilities is actually one I, I plan to keep on driving up a little bit because it's, uh, it's one of my favorite sectors. Um, and you compare that to, I don't have any materials in here. Um, I'm about a quarter of the financial services. I'm at half the communication services, uh, 0.7 of tech, but I'm also more concentrated on my tech. So again, there's a lot of nuance to that. About 0.8 of healthcare, about the same amount of energy and industrials. I'm a little bit uh, heavier on consumer discretionary. With real estate, with uh, my REIT, I am a little bit heavier. It's about 2x the real estate relative to VU. So I thought that would give you some good relative um, comparisons, but this is kind of how I've purposefully driven my pie, my allocations. So if you come in here, you see I have 432 shares of Apple, and today it is green, so it's gone up from that dip we had last week. We see the current PE is 24.67. The I have an average weighted PE for the portfolio at 27.9. We can see that right now. I have almost 17,000 shares altogether. Forward P on Apple is 20.45, and then the average weighted forward PE is 19.93. So here we can see the different allocations we have of these different positions in my portfolio. So Apple's 8.09%, Microsoft 8.08%, Johnson & Johnson is 7.6% of the portfolio. Pepsi is 6.4%, Duke is at 6.09, Realty Income is about 5.9, so this kind of gives you the overall breakdown. Conversely, if you look at the bottom of my positions, Disney is 0.97%, we have Pfizer at 1.05%, Chevron, etc., etc. 
So if you look at the top one, two, three, four, five positions, that's 36%, six, seven, my top eight positions are about 53% of my portfolio. Give you kind of a frame of reference. Annual dividend is $3.08. They tend to increase it in May and the upcoming next payout is February 14th for Apple. Small dividend yield at 0.98. We have a three-year dividend category great one of 11.2%, a five-year dividend category of 10.5, and they haven't been consecutively increasing it yet for 10 years. This is NA. Manually, I calculated it at 10.66%. So if you look at the overall portfolio, we see that it's at a 7.58% average weighted dividend CAGR and the average weighted dividend yield is 2.92%. We see I have $135,000 bout of Apple and it's dripping about $1,331. So that brings the portfolio up to 1.67 million and it's dripping 48,830. And you can see with uh, the kind of average weighted starting yield to have 2.92%, I've crafted a portfolio that is very conservative. If, it, if I was interested in driving that up, then I would just go heavier on starting yield. But some of my biggest gainers have come from my lowest yielders. And ultimately what matters is the total return of, and of course, um, the safety in that total return and the ability to drive that into income. So we see they have a great payout ratio, 23%. And they've been increasing for seven years. We can see that the portfolio's average weighted years of increasing dividends is 35 about. And then we see that beta on Apple's higher. And we see the portfolio's average weighted beta is 0.72. And large market cap at 1.3 trillion. And that brings the average weighted market cap for the portfolio at $358 million. So these kind of numbers are useful to get a sense of when I look at something, you know, I like to see larger market caps. I'd like to see lower betas. I like to see something with a lot of consecutive years of increasing dividends, unless it's something that's a mega cap or a company I really believe in, like a Starbucks or an Apple, in which case I'll, I'll relax that requirement of mine or that guideline of mine. Hopefully it shows I favored quality over high dividend yield. And I try to be very conservative there to make a portfolio that I have a lot of confidence in. All right, I thought it would be fun to show you a tool that E-Trade has that shows your estimated income in your brokerage accounts. So this basically shows for the next year that it estimates that it would make, my portfolios would make $48,762. And then they kind of break it down by different months. So you can see, okay, in June, they estimated make $6,576.12, or in August it would be $3,593. Um, and then you can set this time frame to be different amounts. So for example, you can say, well, what would one week look like? And I'll say, okay, on two, three, you're gonna get $1,223 worth of dividends, or what does it look like in a month out? And then you can say, okay, on this date, February 12th to February 18th, you'll get you know, this much estimated income based on what's been announced and what's estimated. 
So that's kind of a handy tool to utilize, which basically is the same thing my spreadsheet shows. I've noticed that it's a few dollars off sometimes based on also when you do it and when things are announced. So I think that's kind of a handy tool to have. Okay, so here we are in a dividend tracker. This is for January. And so this shows the dividends I've received in, in January. So we've got Pepsi on January 7th for $702, dividend from Realty Income from, for $284, Leggett and Platt $373, Kimberly Clark $557, and Disney at 100, about $101. So in total, that was a little over $2,000 for January. And then I pulled this estimate for 2021 from that uh, E-Trade income tool, the income estimator. So $2,071, which is a 2.59% increase. My guess is that it'll actually be higher than that. And then the annual dividends, I pull that in, 48830 And then down here, as the year goes on, I just fill it out as the data kind of flows in. And then if we go into Q1, this is just a Q1 view where we're going to kind of import the January data and as this all fills in, then these kind of bars fill in. So let's say if for some reason for February I've had something, then that would come in. But this is a quarterly, whereas realty income will, will fill in. And so then these are the 2020 monthly totals for this quarter. This just in, Realty Income Corporation, ticker O, announced that they'll be added to the SP 500 dividend aristocrats list. How awesome is that? Okay, now let's review the dividends I received since my Microsoft video last week. I edited out my account numbers. This week I received two dividend checks from AT&T for a total of $1,223.56. I hold tea in my tax sheltered IRA and in my taxable brokerage. Since I've turned on my drips for tea in both accounts, altogether bought another 33.1 shares of itself taking me from about 2,353 shares to 2,386 shares. So this quarterly dividend payout just increased my annual passive income by about $68.85 a year. Assuming they don't increase their dividend, then this would mean that just by holding AT&T in my accounts, my annual passive income will increase by about $275.40 a year. But it should be higher than that since it compounds quarterly and I, I believe they'll increase it. I got my AT&T dividend checks after I recorded my portfolio section, so these additional shares were not reflected in my portfolio review. And here's also some new news. 3M just increased their dividend by 2% from their previous dividend. So small, but kind of what I expected given things that are going on with 3M. So now it's time for another deep analysis. Apple, ticker AAPL, is a $1.35 trillion market cap $258 billion revenue, 123,000 employee, American multinational technology company that designs, develops, and sells consumer electronics, computer software, and online services. It is considered one of the big four technology companies, along with Amazon, Google, and Facebook, of which I'm long in all of them, though only Apple is in my dividend portfolio. It is the world's third largest mobile phone manufacturer after Samsung and Huawei. In 2018, Apple became the first public U.S. company to be valued at over $1 trillion. The company maintains 504 retail stores in 24 countries as of 2018. It operates the iTunes Store, which is the world's largest music retailer. It is also one of the four elite companies in the world with over $100 billion in cash on hand. 
insane. The Apple II computer is what launched my love with Apple many decades ago when I was a boy. I've been an Apple fanboy since before the term existed. My relative had an Apple II, and it was that computer which launched my passion for computers and gaming, and which was the ultimate catalyst for me getting my bachelor's degree in computer science, and why my entire career has been in technology, primarily software. I've programmed on Apple computers in elementary school, middle school, and high school. My best friend's dad had an Apple IIc, so I remember us playing games like Ultima 3 and Bart's Tale on it. I even used my Apple IIc in my senior AI course final project in college. The professor said that we could use whatever language we wanted, so being an impetuous nerd, I did not in Apple Basic instead of Lisp, Scheme, or Prolog, which is what pretty much everyone else did. I actually got an A on that project, lol. So Apple has been instrumental in shaping who I have become in so many ways. I love Apple. Let's dig into the company. Apple manages its business primarily on a geographic basis. The company's reportable segments consist of number one, the Americas, which includes North and South America, number two, Europe, which includes India, the Middle East, and Africa, number three, Greater China, which includes China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, number four, Japan, and then number five, rest of Asia Pacific, which includes Australia and those Asian countries not included in the company's other reportable segments. Apple has a very high credit rating of AA+, which is the same as Google's Alphabet, and the same as the USA itself. Let's see where Apple is from a sector and industries perspective. We see that they are in the information technology sector and are in a variety of industries, primarily being in technology hardware. I joined Travis Williams' live stream the other day, and a discussion came up about what sector Apple is in. He has a great channel, so check him out. So let's look how the industry categorizes Apple. They are on the NASDAQ exchange, so let's see how NASDAQ has them categorized. We see that they put Apple in the technology sector. Let's check out another source, Seeking Alpha. We see that they put Apple in the information technology sector as well. Let's check out Yahoo Finance. Looks like they put them in technology. Let's try Guru Focus. Guru Focus has them in technology hardware. They have Google in interactive media, which is an interesting one. So as I go through the metrics, we'll see that they will be in different industries. I think it is sometimes tough to find perfect competitors for these newer mega tech companies. Sometimes it's like comparing apples and oranges. Let's check another site I use, MarketBeat. They have them in the computer and technology sector. How about Zaxx? We see them in the computer and technology sector. Let's check Morningstar, another site I use. We see that they're in the technology sector again. Okay, let's check out who the largest institutional holders of Apple are. We see that Vanguard is number one with about 331 million shares worth over $100 billion, which is about 7.45% of outstanding Apple shares, which represents 2.75% of Vanguard's holdings. Let's see which individual holds the most Apple shares. We see that Arthur Levinson is the largest individual shareholder of Apple. Levinson is the chairman of the board for Apple and is the current CEO of Coleco, which focuses on combating aging and related illnesses. Alphabet, aka Google, launched the company in 2013. He's been on Apple's board of directors for over 20 years. He has over 1.1 million shares. That means that his shares could drip around $3.5 million a year. Awesome. Now there's another famous person who has gone long with Apple stock, and that's the GOAT himself, Warren Buffett. And here's a little quiz for you. In November of 2019, Berkshire Hathaway sold about 751,000 Apple shares of their approximately 248 million shares, but their ownership stake increased to 5.6% of outstanding Apple shares from 5.5%. 
How is that possible? How did Warren Buffett's ownership stake increase if he sold shares? Well, that's because Apple's shares outstanding declined to $4.4 billion from $4.51 billion, which is the power of buying back shares. And since Apple stock surged 13% during that quarter, the value of the stock owned by Berkshire increased by over $6 billion to $56 billion. That is part of how Apple's management is working hard for you as a shareholder. They are spending more on stock repurchases than any other company in the world, which is increasing the value of every share you hold for doing nothing. Thank you, Apple management team. Thank you. Okay, let's look at some of the big competitors to Apple. Apple has a ton of competitors in a variety of segments. Let's review Apple's products and see who they compete with in each area. If you look at the Mac product line, which includes the iMac, iMac Mini, MacBook Pro, and Air, then they compete with Dell, Lenovo, Asus, Acer HP, and Google Chromebooks. If we look at Apple's smartwatch product line, then they compete with Samsung, Huawei, Google's Wear OS, Fitbit, Garmin, and others. If we look at the iPad tablet line, then they compete with Samsung, Microsoft, Amazon, Huawei, Lenovo, and Google Pixel Slate. If we look at their operating system, then they compete with Microsoft at the desktop level and Google at the mobile laptop level. If we look at their various accessories like their AirPods and Beats headphones, then they compete with Samsung, Bose, Google Pixel Buds, and others. Then they have Apple TV, which competes with Netflix, Google's Chromecast to some degree, Amazon, Disney, CBS, along with others. And then they have their various services like Apple Pay, where they compete with Samsung, Google, Venmo, PayPal, and others. They also have Apple Music, where they compete with Pandora, Spotify, Google Play Music, and others. And then they have Apple Maps, where they compete with Google, Microsoft, and Waze. So I decided I would use Google in this comparison, as they are another incredible tech company that competes in many of their segments, and I haven't used them yet in a deep analysis video. Specifically, I'll use Alphabet, which is a trillion dollar market cap, $155 billion revenue, 103,000 employee, American multinational technology conglomerate, that was created through a corporate restructuring of Google and became the parent company of Google and several former Google subsidiaries. Alphabet's largest subsidiary is Google. Its other subsidiaries include Calico, DeepMind, GV, Capital G, X, Google Fiber, Jigsaw, Bacani, Sidewalk Labs, Verily, Waymo, Wing, and Loon. The two founders of Google, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, said that their motivation to reorganize Google into Alphabet was to make it cleaner and more accountable and to help improve transparency and oversight, amongst other reasons. Their inspiration for the structure came from what Warren Buffett did with Berkshire Hathaway as a holding company, made up of subsidiaries with strong CEOs who were trusted to run their businesses. Note there are two tickers for Alphabet, Goog and Google. The main difference between the Goog and Google stock ticker symbols is that Goog shares have no voting rights, while Google shares do. The company created two classes of shares in 2014. The reason for the split between the two classes of shares was to preserve the control of founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin. Okay, let's see how Apple and Alphabet are ranked in terms of most effectively managed companies in America per the Drucker Institute rankings. Please watch my Procter & Gamble video if you'd like to learn a bit more about the Drucker rankings. Here we see Apple is ranked as the third best managed company in the world and Alphabet is ranked fourth. So both are incredible with the edge going to Apple. Only two companies in the world are managed better, Amazon which is number one and Microsoft at number two, which I already analyzed. Let's check how Apple and Alphabet compare on Fortune's list. So here on the Fortune 500 we see that Apple is ranked at three and Alphabet is at 15. So they are relatively close in terms of revenue. Apple is below ExxonMobil, which I'm long in, and are above Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. 
Alphabet is below Costco and above Cardinal Health. So both are some of the largest companies in the US. Let's see how they rank compared to all companies in the world. Here we see that both Apple and Alphabet make the list of the 500 largest revenue companies in the world. Apple is at number 11 on the list, below Toyota but above Berkshire Hathaway. Alphabet is at number 37 and is below Agricultural Bank of China but above Cardinal Health. Please watch my Leggett and Platt video if you want to hear some fascinating facts about the top 10 companies in the world. Let's see how they rank on Fortune's most valuable brands list. We find that they are both on this incredible list. Apple is number one in the entire world for most valuable brands. Absolutely stupendous. Google is at number two in the entire world. Amazing. Let's see if either made it into the top 100 of Fortune's world's most admired companies list. We find that Apple is the world's most admired company. Wow. Hard to understate how important that is. Alphabet is an impressive number seven in the world. Okay, let's jump into a brief history of Apple, one that is near and dear to my heart. Apple starts with their two co-founders, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, aka the two Steves, who met one another when Woz was 21 and Jobs was 16 in 1971. Within a year of meeting one another, they formed a business to sell an invention of Wozniak, a device which Woz called a blue box that allowed you to make long-distance phone calls at no cost. Jobs sold 200 of Woz's devices at $150 each, and they split the profits. Jobs once said that if it hadn't been for Wozniak's blue boxes, there never would have been an Apple. A few years later, Woz began designing and developing the computer that would eventually make him famous, the Apple I. He created a computing prototype that displayed letters on a screen, which was the first time in history that someone had done that on a home computer, and he showed it off to his friends at the Homebrew Computer Club, an early computer hobbyist group. Woz actually offered his prototype designs to his employer at Hewlett Packard, but they weren't interested. Luckily, Jobs saw the commercial potential, and he convinced Wozniak to start a new company with him. In order to raise the money they needed to produce the first batch of printed circuit boards, Jobs sold his Volkswagen, and Wozniak sold his programmable calculator. According to Wozniak, Jobs proposed the name Apple Computer when he came back from a farm in Oregon. Jobs thought that Apple sounded fun and not intimidating, and it would put them before Atari in the phone book. The first Apple I design was simply a circuit board, but didn't even have a keyboard or a monitor, or even a case. Their designs sold quickly, and they were able to get investor capital to grow. Woz moved from the Apple I onto the next generation improved system, the Apple II, which he had working by 1976. In 1979, they came out with their first killer app for the business world, VisiCalc, which was a spreadsheet program. Apple management decided they needed to take on IBM, so they released the Apple III in 1980, but it had design issues and never was commercially successful. Also in 1980, Apple IPO'd, selling almost 5 million shares at $22 per share, which, if you adjust for stock splits, was only 39 cents per share. In 1983, Steve went to find a CEO for Apple after the board asked him to find someone, and he decided on John Scully, who was CEO at Pepsi. Steve recruited John with the following famous line, Do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life, or come with me and change the world? Scully later said he was the best recruiter he ever met. In 1984, Apple introduced the Macintosh 128K with a famous Super Bowl commercial called 1984. This commercial showed a dystopian future ruled by a big brother and had a heroine which was running away from a police force into an auditorium with drone workers sitting before a massive screen which had a talking head on it. The heroine hurls a giant hammer she's carrying into the screen, shattering it, and then the following words came up and were spoken. On January 24th, 
Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984, which was a reference to George Orwell's novel. But IBM was still beating the Macintosh in 1985 and sales were lagging, and this triggered a power struggle between Jobs and Scully, the man he recruited. Both Steves ultimately quit Apple in 1985, and Jobs formed a new company called Next, whose operating system was built off a Unix-derived operating system and was the precursor to what eventually would become Mac OS X. He also bought the company that became Pixar from Lucasfilm for $5 million, using proceeds from selling a lot of his shares in Apple. During the next decade, a variety of Apple products came out, but Apple management ultimately asked Steve Jobs to come back as CEO. In 2001, Apple introduced the iPod, which blew up Apple sales. Apple continued to evolve their operating systems and Macs, as well as their retail stores. In 2003, they launched the iTunes Music Store, which was wildly successful. In 2006, Jobs sold Pixar to Disney for $7.4 billion. Not a bad return. In 2007, Apple introduced a new product that changed the world, the iPhone. In 2010, they introduced the iPad, another wildly successful product. In 2011, Jobs unfortunately died after battling cancer. He was an incredible man who touched so many people, including many he never realized he impacted, like me. So not only did Jobs co-found Apple, he made it the amazing company it is today. During his second stint as CEO, the stock price grew almost 7,000% and sales went up around 30-fold. Tim Cook took over after Steve Jobs and has introduced a variety of new innovative phones as well as the Apple Watch, amongst others. Saying that, let's look at some of their current business strategies. Apple has had a variety of strategies, but focusing on the customer has always been key. Great product design, innovation, and customer support is always central to their core business strategies. Another strategy of Apple's has been vertical integration between all their products and services. They lure you into their ecosystem of products and then wow you with their products. Another core strategy is amazing user-centric design with simple and powerful interfaces. Another is an attractive buying experience through its stores, both online and in person, with knowledgeable sales and support staff who are truly helpful. Currently, they have adopted a strategy of lessening their dependence on the sales of iPhones and instead are pushing hard into services. Apple has been a master of marketing strategies for years, using celebrity product placements and using how products can change your life and make it better rather than rely on technical jargon. Basically, they have focused on people's emotions to sell their products. They also have a strategy of building a community of customers. Their fans see Apple as a way of life, a brand that represents them. A final core strategy I reverse engineered is that Apple established its core production facilities in China to take advantage of lower costs. Okay, let's jump into their financials, and let's start with their tax rate. The company's effective tax rate for 2019 was lower compared to 2018 due primarily to a lower statutory federal income tax rate in 2019 and the impact of the act in 2018, partially offset by higher taxes on foreign earnings in 2019. So bottom line, they went from a 25% effective tax rate in 2017 down to 16% in 2019. Now there are four key financial areas I like to understand when I'm analyzing a business and they are, number one, is the company growing? Number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year? Number three, do they have too much debt? And number four, how's their profitability? Let's start with number one. Now there are six main things I like to review when answering the question, is a company growing? And they are number one, is revenue growing? Number two, are earnings growing? Number three, is equity growing? Number four, is cash flow growing? Number five, is the dividend growing? And number six, is the stock price growing? I also like to review how shares outstanding are trending. So let's start with number one of six. 
let's look at the revenue growth history for both Apple and Google on macrotrends.net, Guru Focus, Yahoo Finance, and Zacks. Apple revenue for the 12 months ending December 31st, 2019 was $267.7 billion, a 2.3% increase year over year. Alphabet revenue for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $155.1 billion, a 19.4% increase year over year. So both their trends look great. Let's dig into Apple's revenue trends and margin trends by segment and category to see what we can learn. We see that the Americas represent almost 50% of their revenue, as does the iPhone. Next is Europe and services. We see that their wearables has had the largest growth. We also see how the margin in services is almost double the margin of products, as you'd expect. Okay, let's look at Apple's net income trending over time and compare that to Google's. So number two of six are earnings growing. Apple net income for the 12 months ending December 31st, 2019 was $57.5 billion, a 3.2% decline year over year. Alphabet net income for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $32.6 billion, a 73.8% increase year over year. Let's dig into Apple's operating income by segment. We see that their operating income is similar to their revenue, with the Americas delivering the most operating income, followed by Europe. Okay, on to number three of six, is equity growing? Apple shareholder equity for the quarter ending December 31st, 2019 was $89.5 billion, a 24.1% decline year over year. Alphabet shareholder equity for the quarter ending September 30th, 2019 was $194.97 billion, a 14.8% increase year over year. So Google has nicer trends here, though I anticipate with Apple's strategic shifts that this will begin trending in a better direction again. Okay, let's move on to number four of six, is cash flow growing? To answer the question, is a company growing? Please watch my Southern Company video if you want to learn more about cash flow nuances. We see that Apple's free cash flow trends are amazing. 50 billion in 2017, rising to 64 billion in their trailing 12 months. Google's are smaller, but still impressive at a trailing 12 months of 28 billion. Incredible for both of them. Okay, now let's move on to number five of six, is the dividend growing? Since Google doesn't have a dividend, I'll just look at Apple's, which shows their trend on top. We see that both their share price have increased in the last 365 days as denoted by their green spark lines. We see that Apple's PE is at 22.6 compared to Google's, which is higher at 32. Obviously, I'd like to see them both lower. Apple's forward PE is at 22.5 compared to Google's at a 26.1, which I pulled from Guru Focus. Apple's dividend in Q1 of 2019 was $2.92 per share per year, and it is currently at $3.08 per share per year. Right now, I see Apple focusing on share buybacks, probably more so than before due to interest rates and potential changes due to political parties. I would wager they will drive more to the dividend in the future. So Apple is a long-term play for me, given their low current yield. Of course, total returns is important, and I love the optionality Apple stock gives me. I pulled the CAGRs from Guru Focus, other than the ones I manually calculated. Apple's 3-year dividend CAGR is a great 11.2%. Apple's 5-year dividend CAGR is an awesome 10.5%, and I manually calculated it at 10.66%. They don't have a 10-year yet. Overall, I like to see a 7% dividend CAGR, or higher, so Apple is wonderful. One good check you can consider doing is to see what their dividend CAGR is, and then see if their net income is also increasing at that rate so that their payout ratio goes sideways. I'll leave that to you. Apple's dividend yield right now is a super weak 0.9 something percent. Apple's 10-year estimated yield on costs is a poor 2.58 percent. 
Apple's 30-year estimated yield on cost is getting decent at almost 20%. So long timeframes to get where you want, but the returns have already been stellar, with long-term DGI looking compelling. We see that Apple has had a seven-year trend of increasing dividends. I usually don't like to invest in a dividend company with less than 10 consecutive years of increasing their dividend, unless it's a company that rocks in other ways, like Starbucks, Disney, Home Depot, or Apple, amongst others. Ideally, I like to see over 20 years to prove that they cannot cut through two recessionary periods. And in terms of payout ratio, we see that they have massive amounts to grow, being only at 24%. So bottom line, I think Apple makes sense if you're creating a portfolio for generational wealth. That being said, you could also sell some shares you needed as a way to mitigate the lower starting yield, though I've seen that people sometimes regret selling great companies. Okay, let's look at what's going on with shares outstanding. In 2019, Apple announced an increase to its current share repurchase program authorization from $100 billion to $175 billion. During 2019, Apple repurchased $67.1 billion of its common stock and paid dividends and dividend equivalents of $14.1 billion. Did you hear that? In 2019, Apple bought $67 billion of its own stock. That is just incredible. Apple shares outstanding for the quarter ending December 31st, 2019 were $4.5 billion, a 6.7% decline year over year. Alphabet shares outstanding for the quarter ending September 30th, 2019 were $0.76 billion, a 0.8% decline year over year. So I love what I see Apple doing here, driving their shares down so aggressively. I'd like Google to do more of that, but they're focusing on driving their money into R&D and such. Companies typically issue more shares when they need to raise capital through equity financing or for reasons such as acquisitions and mergers, or internal reasons like exercising employee stock options and such. Finally, number six of six, is the stock price growing? To help us answer the question, is a company growing? Here's some data from Apple's 2019 10K, which shows how Apple has been outperforming both the S&P 500 and their peers in the tech index. Okay, let's look at the total returns of Apple compared to Google and to the S&P 500 using dqydj.com and Dividend Channel's Total Returns Strip Calculator. I used DQYDJ because Dividend Channel was missing some data. This models what would have happened if you invested 10K around 15 years ago, i.e. about when Google went public. We see that your 10K would have turned into about 300K for Google, which is an annual return of almost 25% a year. Your 10K in the S&P 500 would have taken you to about 39K, still good, but nothing compared to Apple. Your 10K would have turned into a monstrous $2.1 million in Apple which is an annual return of over 41% a year. So Apple has the best return of any stock I've modeled in this series, and by far. Okay, let's move on to number two. Can the company cover what it owes in the next year? Which is asking if it can cover its short-term debt obligations. I like to use the current ratio to determine that. It is important to compare ratios in the same industry due to fluctuations in what is normal. A ratio higher than one indicates that a company will have a high chance of being able to pay off its shorter-term debt whereas a ratio of less than one indicates that a company may not be able to pay off its shorter term debt. So the higher the ratio, the more liquid the company is. I like to see ratios between 1.5 and 3. So Apple's current ratio is 1.6 compared to the industry median 1.91, which ranks them lower than 62% of their industry. Google's current ratio is 3.78 compared to their industry median of 2.07, which ranks them higher than 73% of their industry. So both of them look within ranger. Let's move on. The next main item I look to look at when analyzing a business is if it has taken on too much debt using the debt to equity ratio. Remember, debt to equity is total liabilities divided by total equity. If the ratio is greater than one, the majority of assets are financed through debt. 
If it's smaller than one, assets are primarily financed through equity. I like to see between one to 1.5. A high debt to equity ratio is often associated with high risk as it often means the business is pushing for fast growth with debt. The average debt to equity ratio amongst S&P 500 companies is approximately 1.5. That being said, the appropriate debt to equity ratio varies depending on the industry because some industries use more debt financing than others. Capital intensive industries and businesses that have stable and recurring demand that remains relatively constant regardless of economic conditions often can have higher ratios. So companies with high ratios often include utilities, transports, energy, financials, telcos and such. Apple's debt to equity is 1.21 compared to their industry median of 0.3, which ranks it lower than 90% of their industry. Google's debt to equity is 0.07 versus their industry median of 0.15, which ranks them higher than 66% of their industry. So we see two different strategies here, but both companies are so cash rich and cash flows so much, these are fine to me. Okay, let's see if we think they can cover their interest payments. So let's see if EBIT's at a reasonable level. Apple EBIT for the 12 months ending December 31st, 2019 was $66.2 billion, a 2.7% decline year over year. Alphabet EBIT for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $32 billion, a 18.6% increase year over year. I normally like to see EBIT greater than or equal to 3 times net interest. Looking at their income statements, we see that both of them cover. Okay, the number 4 final main item I like to look at when analyzing a business is to understand their profitability. So let's look at return on equity or their earnings power. Normally I expect to see 10 to 15% to cover their cost of capital and make money for shareholders, but the more the better. So ROE tells us how much profit a company makes for every dollar it has in shareholder equity. ROE is the income that is being generated as a percentage of shareholders equity, also known as book value. A large amount of intangible assets can make a company have negative book value. So companies with lots of patents, which are obviously valuable, can cause you to be misled by its negative book value. We see that Apple's ROE is 57.5% versus an industry median 5.4%, which ranks them higher than 95% of their industry. Google's ROE is 17.8% compared to the industry median 2.1%, which ranks them higher than 96% of their industry. So both of them look excellent here. Please watch my AbbVie video if you want a more detailed explanation of ROE, which goes into some of its nuances. Okay, let's look at return on assets, ROA, as a measure of profitability. ROA will tell us how efficiently a company is squeezing profit from their assets. Return on assets is a measure of how well a company takes all of the money it has and uses that to make more money. It's a metric which is used to calculate management's effectiveness to understand how much profit a company earns for every dollar of its assets. ROAs over 5% are generally what I look for. The higher the ROA, the higher the asset efficiency. So Apple's ROA is 16.8% compared to the industry median 2.6%, which ranks them higher than 96% of the industry. Google's ROA is 13.4% compared to the industry median 0.25%, which ranks them higher than 84% of the industry. So both of them are doing very well here, with Apple coming out on top. Okay, let's look at return on invested capital trends. ROIC is a profitability ratio that looks to measure the percentage return that investors in a company are earning from their invested capital. So it's the residual value of assets minus liabilities. Thus, it is the amount of return a company makes above the average cost it pays for its debt and equity capital. Here we see Apple's in blue and Google's in red. They are both generating great ROIC. We also see that their ROICs are greater than their WACs, which I pulled from Guru Focus. If ROIC is greater than WAC, then it generally means that it's creating value. 
if ROIC is less than WAC, then it generally means they are destroying value. That being said, I generally like to see ROICs over 2%, which means that the company is generating value for its investors. If it's less than 2%, it means it's destroying value. Please watch my Pepsi video if you want to learn more about ROICs, WAC, and their relationship. Okay, the next profitability metric we will look at is net margin. I like the net profit margin because it's a decent metric and just a single figure to gauge how effectively management is running the business. Net profit margins vary depending on the type of industry you're in. Watch my previous videos for more details. Solid net profit margins can mean a stronger company that is able to survive in challenging economic times. So Apple's net margin is 21.5% compared to the industry median 2.75%, which ranks them higher than 96% of their industry. Google's net margin is 21% compared to the industry median 0.69%, which ranks them higher than 84% of their industry. So both are doing really well here in similar margins of around 21%. Okay, let's look at one final profitability measure, which is earnings per share, or EPS. EPS is a company's profit divided by the number of common shares outstanding. EPS shows how much money a company makes for each share of its stock. A higher EPS often means that people will pay more for a company due to their higher profits. Sometimes people like to utilize diluted EPS rather than basic EPS in their analysis. So Apple's EPS for the 12 months ending December 31st, 2019 was $12.70, a 4.1% increase year-over-year. Year. Alphabet's EPS for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $46.60, a 75.1% increase year-over-year. So they both have great EPS growth, with Google's being bumpier in 2018, causing the greater increase in 2019. Okay, let's move from their financials to their community involvement, charitable giving, and their environmental, social, and governance work. Let's first start reviewing their sustainability scores, including another company I own for reference, ExxonMobil. Now the lower the total and percentile ESG risk score, the better. So we see that Apple's ESG risk score is 24, which puts them at the 32nd percentile, and their controversy score is a 3. Google's ESG risk score is a 30, which puts them in the 53rd percentile, and their controversy score is a 4. And then we see ExxonMobil's ESG risk score is a 37, which puts them in the 76th percentile, and their controversy score is a 3. So Apple has the best score, followed by Google, and then ExxonMobil. Interestingly, Google has the highest controversy score, which I wouldn't have guessed. So what is Apple doing that helps contribute to the lower scores? Apple has three main areas they focus on. Number one, climate change, with a goal to reduce their impact on climate change by using renewable energy sources and driving energy efficiency in their products, facilities, and supply chain. Number two, resources, where they conserve precious resources so all can thrive. And number three, safer materials, where they pioneer the use of safer materials in their products and processes. In 2018, they reached a major milestone. 100% of the electricity they use at all of their facilities came from renewable sources. Where feasible, they produced their own renewable energy by building their own renewable energy projects, including solar arrays, wind farms, biogas fuel cells, and low-impact hydro generation systems. I found the following blurb in a recent 10K of theirs. It says, In 2015, we partnered with the local utility, Duke Energy, to help build five solar PV projects through Duke Energy's Green Source Rider program. These solar PV projects, which started coming online in late 2015, were Duke Energy's first Green Source Rider projects to become operational. I love seeing that collaboration as both a Duke and Apple shareholder. They also said they enable telecommuting to minimize emissions from commuting. Apple has a history of giving. 
Apple says that its internal giving program has raised more than $365 million for nonprofit organizations around the world since its inception eight years ago. Apple employees also spent nearly 3,000 hours sorting and distributing food at Second Harvest last year, making the food bank one of the largest recipients of Apple volunteer hours in the United States. Nice job, Apple. Okay, let's move to their executive team. The average tenure of their senior leadership team is over 15 years, which is great to see. If we look at their Glassdoor ratings, which I mentioned in a previous video, we find that they have a very high overall score at 4.0. Awesome. And 91% approve of Tim Cook, their CEO, which is an exceedingly high score, especially with so many anonymous reviews being completed. So that's a lot of admiration and respect for him, especially after coming in after an icon like Steve Jobs. So kudos goes to Tim Cook. Speaking of Tim, let's look at his background. Tim Cook has been the CEO of Apple since August 2011. Before that, he was their chief operating officer and was responsible for all of the company's worldwide sales and operations, including end-to-end -end management of Apple's supply chain, sales activities, and service and support in all markets and countries. He also headed Apple's Macintosh division. So he has an extensive operations background, and I found that the COO is the person who best understands the most about a company, often more so even than the CEO. Okay, one way we can assess the CEO is on how their stock has done since they've taken office. Here we see Apple in black, Google in purple, and Spy in blue. We see that Apple has performed the best, with Google close behind, and both of them blowing Spy out of the water. So a stellar job by Tim Cook. Awesome. Okay, let's jump into concerns and risks. There are a variety of risks you need to be aware of that can impact a company like Apple, and I'll cover some of them. Their success is highly dependent on their ability to attract and retain qualified employees, especially challenging in the ultra-competitive tech environment. Apple has some risk tied to changes in interest rates. Foreign currency exchange rates, and in particular the strengthening of the US dollar, will negatively affect Apple's net sales and margins as expressed in dollars. Overall global negative economic conditions could materially adversely affect Apple. The technology landscape is evolving quickly, which is both risk and opportunity for Apple. Their ability to source materials and components is a risk to be aware of. The company could be impacted by unfavorable results of legal proceedings, such as being found to have infringed on intellectual property rights, amongst others. Of course, like any technology company, they can be impacted by IT failures. They can also be negatively impacted by political changes, international disputes, war, terrorism, etc. Of course, they face extreme competition in all of their segments from other companies trying to take market share. There is both risk and opportunity depending on which political party comes into power and how far left or right the party drives things. I was curious if a recession would be a material risk to Apple, so let's look at how they did during the dot-com crash and the 2008 banking crash. We see Apple in black, the S&P 500 in blue, and Google in purple. We see that Apple absolutely shot up and has outpaced both Spy and Google. It did pull back a bit during the 2008 time frame and then went sideways for a brief period of time, but then like a rocket ship it took off. So those are some of the risks I thought of, but dive into their details if you are so inclined to be more thorough. So let's talk about what some of my thoughts are on price. Please watch my 3M video if you are interested in learning about how you can value a business and more details about how you can use discounted cash flow to estimate how much a stock or business is worth paying for. Apple's DCF fair value on Guru Focus is about $360, versus the stock price of $308 when I did this, so its margin of safety is around 14%. We see Google shows a $922 DCF, 
So if we use these default assumptions, then we see that Apple is still underpriced, but Google is overpriced. I thought I'd do a quick DCF of Apple to see how that compares to Guru folks's. So here we are in a quick DCF for Apple that I threw together. And I pulled this weighted average cost of capital of 8.44% from Guru Focus. They have 4.6 billion shares outstanding. And I decided that my required rate of return would be 8%. And you can put in whatever makes sense for you. If you want to, you know, pad that more and say I need a margin of safety, then you can increase this to 15% or whatever. Doing that would, would change the, uh, the, the price, the fair value. So the higher your rate of return, the lower the price would need to be for you to buy into it. And then these free cash flows I just pulled from their old statements. And then the go forward cash flows here, I calculate. So I looked at this right here is the delta between each of these years and how much the cash flow changed. And then if I look at this and I take the average of it, we see it's about 5% per year of increasing cash flow. So I decided to get a little more conservative and say the average would be 4% for a couple of years and then it'd go down to 3% and stay at that. So this number right here for 2020 estimated cash flow is just 4% higher than the 2019 one and et cetera, et cetera. And then we have a terminal value and the terminal value takes the last previous year. So 2024's free cash flow estimated amount and multiplies that by one plus this value right here. So 1.03 and then divides that by the required rate of turn minus, minus the um, final delta there. And that's how we get the terminal value. And then in order to get these free cash flows into present values, we want to divide them by the discount. So this discount is one plus the weighted average cost of capital to the power of one. And then this one is one plus the, the weighted cost of capital power of two. So for each year, it's another one all the way to here. So this is 1.0844 to the fifth power. And so then this present value is going to be this free cash flow amount divided by the discount amount. So this is how much the money would be worth based on how these different things play out. And then we finally get this present value for this terminal value, 156 million. And then the fair value is going to be the sum of all these things here. So these years divided by the shares outstanding. So that's how we get a fair value of $261. Current share price is $300. So we're obviously above that right now. So this, if this is accurate, this implies it's a little bit spending. If we said we need a higher rate of return, then it's even more spending, which is logical. Okay, let's take a look at their PEs. Watch my previous videos to learn some nuance about PEs and what I expect to see in different industries. Apple's PE is 24.4 versus an industry median 19.07, which ranks them lower than 58% of the industry. Google's PE is 31.8 compared to their industry median 28, which ranks them higher than 74% of the industry. 
So both of them were looking a bit pricey here. Please watch my ABBA video if you want to learn more about the S&P 500 PE ratios. Remember that the average PE across the S&P 500 is around a 15 or 16 if you go back to the beginning of the markets. Okay, another final metric I like to look at is how their dividend yield has trended over time as an input into my buying decisions. So here are the last five years of dividend yield trends for Apple. We see that Apple's dividend yields is about a 1% versus an industry median 2.33%. There will be minor disparities between this and what I reported in my spreadsheet due to when I filmed these different sections during the week. So Apple has a tiny dividend yield, but are growing it fairly aggressively. I prefer to see a 3%. Looking at their trends, we see that Apple has been steadily getting pricier relative to its value, as you can see with the downward sloping trend line, especially from January of 2019 until now. Remember, yield is their annual dividend that they pay out divided by share price. So if this line is flat, then it's one indicator that its relative price to value has stayed flat when looking at this metric in isolation. If the line trends downhill, then it probably indicates that it's getting pricier, and if it trends up, then it indicates that it's potentially becoming more of a price worth considering. It will have a tendency to trend up if they increase their annual dividend payout, or if the share price goes down. It will trend down if the share price goes up relative to the dividend payout. So the ideal is to buy when the yield is high, and then you see the line trend down because the share price is going up after you buy it. Of course, if the share price goes down, then you can drip more of their shares. Let's look at what analysts at MarketBeat said about Apple and Google. So Apple's consensus rating is a buy compared to the consensus rating six months ago of a hold. Share price today is $308.66. Consensus price target today is $313.05, which is a 1.42% upside. The consensus price target six months ago was $216.28. Google's consensus rating is a buy. The consensus rating six months ago is a buy. Their share price today is $1,482.60, and their consensus price target today is $1,486.84, which is a 0.29% upside. The consensus price target six months ago was $1,386.11. So here we see that the professionals believe that both have marginal upside and both have buy ratings. Now let's look at insider trading. We see a variety of transactions by their officers and directors. There are some decently sized transactions that might influence you. Please watch my Southern Company video if you want to learn more about how to read a form for dealing with insider trading. Nothing jumps out to me as disconcerting or material, but I'm not looking over broad timeframes, which if you're concerned or interested, you should do. Okay, so what about me? When did I buy Apple and what price would I want to see before I might be compelled to add more to my position? And as always, don't take this as financial advice. I've been a lover of Apple since I was a kid, but ironically I never invested in it. A friend of mine bought Apple stock and saw it do nothing for a while, so it biased me against investing in them. Yep, that's how stupid I am. Of course, it wasn't just that. You see, while I loved the Apple II line, I wasn't a big fan of their original Macs. I remember having to use Macs in college and was never impressed with them. But when the iPhone came out, I got more compelled to reevaluate investing in Apple. Unfortunately, I sat on the sidelines watching the stock, wanting to see a decent pullback before I invested. Huge mistake. I remember I used to have almost daily conversations with a good friend of mine who was a professional wealth manager and we kept asking each other how could Apple keep running. When it hit 100 in 2014, I was on the phone with that friend and we just marveled at it, but neither of us could bring ourselves to jump in. So I kept sitting on the sidelines watching it run, run, run. But then in September of 2018, negative news started coming out of Apple. They missed on some numbers which spooked people and Apple management said they were no longer going to release iPhone unit sales numbers, breaking from tradition. 
and since we already knew iPhone sales were declining, it was another big red flag pushing the stock down. And then we had the trade war with China, so pretty much everything was saying that Apple was in trouble. This in turn dropped the stock from 227 down to 149 on January 8th of 2019. But I had been telling myself I would jump in with a decent investment if it broke 150. I decided it was time to correct my mistakes of not investing into a company that had made my favorite products of all time, including the Apple II, Apple IIc, and the iPhone. So I sold out of some other stocks I had, and between that and some cash on the side, I finally established my Apple position at 149. I tend to only sell out of one stock for another when I really think that there is something awesome on the table. Now here we are at over $310, and I'm up around 110% in only one year. Never thought it would run that fast. So I don't plan to do any direct buying of shares at these prices, but I'll let my drip keep working for me. If it fell back to under 200 then I'd probably get more interested. But will we see that? I don't know. What I do know is that Apple is one of those companies I plan to pass down to my kids and probably 30 years from now I'll look back at today's prices and wish I'd funneled even more into it. So what do you think? Are you a bull or a bear on Apple? Are you going to buy, sell, hold, or keep looking? Finally, if you learned anything or enjoyed this video, then please don't forget to hit the thumbs up button and leave a comment, including your partner number, as a simple way to thank me for making this free deep analysis video of Apple. Adding your partner number to your comment helps me be able to do shoutouts and visual acknowledgements of my subscribers who've watched and commented on most of my videos. With this Apple video, I'm hashtag partner33 because I've watched all my videos from start to end and as well as left a comment. Thanks, stay awesome, I believe in you, and I'll see you in my next video. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I'm only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments. Don't use this information without double checking it and talking to someone a lot smarter than me after you completely understand it. So I'll see you in the next video and remember to stay positive, patient, play for the long term, keep investing in great companies, budget reasonably, and win. I know you can do it. Just like I know you can hit the subscribe, like, and bell icons, share this video with others, and comment below.